welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, I speak with a war correspondent who has been covering conflicts in the Middle East for two decades. First, we talk about the current impasse in U.S.-Iran diplomacy and Iran's domestic politics. Then we discuss the war in Syria, corruption in Lebanon, the rivalry between Turkey and Saudi Arabia, and new ties between Israel and some Arab states. My guest today is Borzu Dargahi, an international correspondent for The Independent, who has been covering the Middle East, North Africa, South Asia, and Europe since 2002, with stints in Tehran, Baghdad, Beirut, Cairo, and now Istanbul. He's covered the 2003 invasion of Iraq, the 2006 war in Lebanon, and the 2009 uprising in Iran, as well as the 2011 Arab Spring. And he has been a Pulitzer Prize finalist three times. Borzu, welcome to the Iran podcast. It's my pleasure. It's great to have you. Let's start from the news of this week or the past two months, I should say, on U.S.-Iran diplomacy hitting an impasse. Basically, there's been a delay, at least um, from the viewpoint of of some of us here in Washington and the observers that um, expected the Biden team to reenter diplomacy with Tehran faster or more simpler. You just had a piece in The Independent arguing that Iran might just walk away from the nuclear deal and decide to abandon the JCPOA uh, while all focus has been on the U.S. I want to talk about this, why you think Tehran might make that decision, because I don't feel that urgency here in Washington that there is much to lose for the Biden team from stalling this return to the JCPOA. But you obviously think that um, Tehran might sort of escalate the situation further. Talk about what you think Iran would do? Well, I would just say that one of the curses of U.S. foreign policy is that they always seem to be fighting the last war. Um, And so, for example, in um, Iraq, they thought that they were trying to dispel the myths and ghosts of Vietnam. Uh, in reality, they, you know, it was not a same situation at all. It was not the same uh, U.S. military and it was not the same uh, enemy. Um, in the Arab Spring uprisings, there was hesitancy because they didn't want to do another Iraq. Uh, and so they were thinking that th- this was the same kind of thing as before. And I think that in this instance, too, um, you know, they, they think it's uh, 2013 again, that they're, you know, sort of going to s- use the same uh, tactics and the same kind of um, strategy that they used back then to get Iran to the negotiating table. Uh, But, you know, the world has changed. Iran has changed. Uh, U.S. leverage has changed dramatically. Russia and China have changed. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the calculus is super different than it was then. And I have a feeling that there is this sort of thinking among the people in the Biden team, some of whom I know personally, and, and have uh, uh, interviewed in the past, some of whom I've actually worked with in, in the field on, on, uh, in, in various capacities, uh, just alongside them um, when, when they were in previous uh, uh, lives, so to speak. So I, I don't think that they're necessarily nefarious people, but they think that the same thing that worked before are in the same, is going to work now. And that is a very, very uh, incorrect presupposition. 
Mm-hmm. And I want to mention a tweet you had, which goes along with uh, what you were just talking about, some of the people in the administration. That's uh, You wrote that whomever is advising the Biden team that Iran is desperate to return to the JCPOA is just giving really, really bad advice. And the danger, you wrote, is that Iran may decide to, it can have its yellow cake and eat it too, meaning defy sanctions and up its nuclear program. You also explain how Iran has endured two and a half years of maximum pressure, several rounds of big protests, low oil prices, two big assassinations, the biggest COVID outbreak on and and, and combined with all of these uh, most crippling sanctions imposed by the Trump administration. Why do you think um, Tehran would be able to continue this pressure? Because the feeling in Washington and not just from the more hawkish side, but also within the administration is that this this is almost the end, that if the pressure continues a little more, that Tehran is going to capitulate, capitulate or uh, make more concessions. Why do you think that the Iranians will be able to continue the pressure? Well, there's very specific reasons. For one thing, um, there was a report in Bloomberg that Iran's exports to China, oil exports to China, had hit a two-year high, um, record in, a record two-year high uh, in, in, in terms of uh, uh, daily uh, barrels of oil, uh, something like 850,000 or more per day. That's one. Oil prices are edging back up from their low of a, a couple of years ago, in the, during the, especially during the, the peak of the pandemic. There was a low demand worldwide, but everyone is anticipating increased demand. That's two. Three, Iran has become better and better and better at evading these sanctions. Four, you've got Russia and China not just provide, not just buying um, and selling Iran things that it might need, but also providing a measure of diplomatic uh, support. There is a, an axis developing with regard to a sort of Eurasian axis developing uh, that is a, a, a kind of a loose alliance between these two ancient rivals, Russia and China, and Iran is included in that. And so on. And so there's, you know, more and more confidence on the part of these international players. It's, you know, it was not a um, unipolar world in 2011, 12, 13, when the U.S. brought Iran to the negotiating table. But it's even less of a unipolar world now. And the U.S. is even weaker. It's perceived as weaker. You know, it's, it's, it's just gone through its own little coup attempt uh, in Washington. It doesn't really command as much respect as it used to. And I think that there is a you know, sincere belief uh, on the part of Iranians, on the part of Russians, on the part of Chinese, that they can you know, basically do their own thing and ignore the United States and its demands and its you know, extra-territorial sanctions impositions. And I also want to talk about Iran's uh, domestic scene or some of what is seen as crises in Iran. I know you, I know you have covered some of this for the independent. There have been rounds of protests, some very widespread anti-government protests in Iran. The latest was in November 2019. Before that, in 2018, 2017, the one in 2019 was um, sparked with a hike in fuel prices. The security forces basically oppressed the protesters very severely, very violently. Thousands of people were arrested, given harsh sentences. And some here in Washington and also in the Iranian diaspora and exile community think that these are serious crises that the Islamic Republic is dealing with and has basically brought it to the verge of collapse and imminent 
um, you know, change of the regime and that this can play in into how the U.S. should approach Iran. What do you think about these crises, how the Islamic Republic responds to these widespread protests and whether this is a serious existential threat to the uh, political structure in Iran? Negar, you and I have been in the U.S. for a while. Me, maybe like since I was a very little kid. And I, you know, (laughs) remember living through the revolution. And I I mean, it's been like that forever. You know, people in the diaspora saying, you know, yeah, this regime is going to fall in six months. That was, you know, it's been 42 years now that this regime has been in place. And in many ways, not always, but in many ways, it's stronger than ever. Not only was it able to suppress the 2009 protests, which were far bigger than anything we've seen since, uh, but it's been able to suppress these smaller protests. And it's been able to do that without, and this is key, employing all of the arrows in its quiver of security options. So it has not like brought out, you know, the army in mass to impose martial law, uh, you know, in those 2009 uh, protests. It used, you know, irregular forces, a bunch of Basiji thugs, you know, inside of Hezbollah, all these, you know, these groups, these paramilitaries. Mm-hmm. It mostly used those forces. It didn't even really use the full brunt of the Nidu Antizami. It didn't even totally bring out all of the kind of forces in the police, in the regular police. Um, They didn't need to resort to the Quds force, to their elite folks. They didn't need to deploy the same foreign militias that they've used to suppress protests in, you know, Iraq and, and Lebanon and, you know, to some extent in Syria. They could have used those folks. They didn't need to. And so to me, that is a sign of a country that is pretty confident about these protests, maybe even welcomes to the, the, the protests to a certain extent to see who the troublemakers are, bring them out, bring them out into the fore, and then we go and arrest them later. You know how the Islamic Republic works. Um, they take advantage of these protests and they use them to identify their you know, real enemies and so on. So I really, really don't think... And, you know, I think this is key. If the 2009 protests didn't lead to regime change, I don't think the, you know, 2018 protests or the 2019 protests are going to lead to regime change. Either there's a sort of myth that protests lead to regime change in Middle East countries. I think there's a bit of a racist trope there. Uh, No one thinks that the Yellow Vest protests in France or the mass protests in support of Navalny in Russia are going to lead to the downfall of Macron or or Putin. Uh, But for some reason, every time a few people come out in the streets of a Middle East country, uh, Western analysts think, you know, this is it. This is the big one. Mm -hmm. And um, I want to ask you, going back to the diaspora and the exotic community, I want to ask you a question about social media and Twitter, and then um, I want to go back to the region and talk about Syria. But talking about this imminent collapse of the regime or how protests are essentially translated into a revolution, and this is not just analysts in D.C. or people in the administration, there's also a very, very strong presence on social media by part of the Iranian exile and opposition, some in the country, but also very strong um, troll armies, basically, that both me and you and some of our colleagues have been dealing with. And sometimes these sort of 
campaigns or online presence is taken into account, mostly by the previous administration. The Biden team is still new, but many times as just evidence that this is something that's eminent or this is something that all Iranians want. This is something that they're asking Iranians are you know, validating maximum pressure or Iranians are asking for more sanctions or Iranians are supporting the Poland summit by Secretary Pompeo, you name it. Talk about this fear. I know you once talked in, um, in an Atlantic Council event about the Twitter sphere or the Iranian Twitter. But if you can explain some of that for part of our audience who may not be on Twitter or familiar with Iranian Twitter, how these uh, different layers play into. I'll just say that the bulk of um, Iranian people in Iran are not on Twitter. They're on, as you know, um, and as experts in Iran know, they use Telegram. That's the bottom line. One, you know, they're, they're, they're not using Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. Two, uh, Twitter is, in terms of the Iranian Twitter sphere, highly, highly weaponized. And I think that it is, you know, perhaps as high as 90% of the accounts, the Iranian-related accounts on Twitter are inauthentic. That is that they are uh, troll accounts uh, operated by various exile groups, maybe for pay or like financed by various governments that are hostile to Iran. And it's useless in terms of a gauge of where Iran is at, Twitter. I mean, maybe in terms of where the Iranian diaspora is at, it might be kind of useful, but I think that it's, there's not a lot of people from Tehran who are using Twitter. Uh, first of all, it's filtered out. It's blocked in Iran. And second of all, it's just not where they congregate. They congregate on Telegram, on channels on Telegram and so on. That's where the discussions take place. So I think that that's one. And yeah, you're absolutely right. You were sort of pointing to these examples of, you know, back during the Trump era where they would, you know, take some random Twitter account, like, you know, picture of graffiti in, in Tehran saying, you know, death to Khamenei or whatever, and use that as an illustration that the regime was on its death throes. I mean, it was, you know, I mean, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it was pretty pathetic, the, the way the Trump administration re-broadcast uh, inauthentic stuff that was posted to uh, Iran Twitter. Mm-hmm. And now I want to talk about Syria. I know you've been to Syria. You covered the war. It's the end, the 10th anniversary, basically, of the, not just the war, the uprising in Syria. It was an extension of the Arab Spring. It's turned into a civil war. And this is related to our conversation about this imminent regime change in Iran, because there has been this idea that there would be an imminent collapse of the regime, the Assad regime in Syria. And we haven't seen that happening in part to Iran and some of its allies, Russia and others, who've helped keep Assad in power. Talk about the war in Syria, your experience, first of all, covering the war firsthand. I know you had a piece about bombing hospitals in Syria over the years and why you think Assad has been able to stay in power despite against all odds, basically, and predictions that he would be eventually gone. Well, I mean, you you had a peaceful uprising. It, the response of the uh, Syrian regime was just horrific, near genocidal levels of violence. And that prompted, you know, a rebellion, an armed rebellion that was supported by various uh, foreign actors. Uh, at first, that included Turkey, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and um, other countries, including the U.S., France, and U.K., uh, providing you know lethal 
weaponry and supplies to the so-called moderate rebels. You had jihadi groups joining into the battle. You know, so you had a dynamic where there was this sort of civil war, basically. And Iran, uh, which has a long alliance with the Assad regime, came to the assistance of Bashar al-Assad. Hezbollah, the Lebanese armed group, um, came to the assistance of Assad. And, you know, it was a kind of really, really horrible grudge match for a while. But it still appeared in 2015 that um, Assad was losing, um, that Assad was, that, the, that the rebels were about to overrun key parts of northwest Syria. They had a presence in Damascus and so on. And that's when Russia intervened at the behest of uh, Iran. And that's when Iran also expanded its uh, program of um, deploying militias and also brought in uh, uh, more and more Iranian fighters as well as fighters from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, and so on to bolster the diminished resources of the, um, of the Syrian armed forces. But really it was Russian air power that made the difference. And on the, on the military front, the Russian intervention, you know, devastated the uh, Syrian um, uh, opposition areas. And there was, you know, just sort of ruthless bombing of uh, civilian areas, uh, depopulation, essentially, a Chechnya strategy, if you will, uh, that basically won Assad eventually the war while devastating huge swaths of the country. And I think also the fact that these jihadi groups, including ISIS, had joined in the opposition, it allowed the uh, outside world to sort of ignore what was happening in Syria and, you know, give uh, uh, Assad, if not a blank check, a sort of a pass with a wink and a nod in terms of what he was doing, uh, as long as they could basically excuse it as in the name of fighting terrorism and extremism. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about um, this piece that you had about bombing hospitals. If you can just explain a little bit, it's titled Age of Impunity. Uh, You talk about uh, the brutal Syrian conflict and how this might become the blueprint for future wars. Basically, the title is that what years of attacks on Syrian hospitals mean for the world. Explain what you're arguing here and why you think this Syrian conflict could become a blueprint for future wars. Well, I mean, it's sort of related to what I was just saying. You know, this this strategy, the, let's call it for back of a lack of a better uh, word, this, you know, Chechnya strategy of just like ruthless, relentless bombing of civilian inf- infrastructure in order to, because when you have an insurgency, as, you know, everyone from uh, the Philippines insurgents in the early 20th century to um, the Vietnamese insurgents, you, you sort of root yourself in the local population, okay? And so that makes it really tough for a government to, um, you know, separate out the, you know, civilians and the fighters. And that makes a, you know, big moral dilemma. So what Syria, what happened in Syria is basically they didn't have the moral dilemma. They didn't try to root out the fighters from the civilians. They just bombed everything, including hospitals, including schools, including, you know, civilian homes to horrific effect. Uh, and that was this sort of strategy of the uh, Assad uh, regime and Russia. And uh, that was, uh, you know, quite effective in the end. And it might provide this sort of amoral blueprint for future conflicts. Mm-hmm. 
Now, I want to move to another part of the region. I want uh, to talk about Saudi Arabia. And there's an interesting story here um, because you based in Turkey, in Istanbul. And I want to talk about this episode of the Khashoggi killing because you've been seeing that from a very interesting perspective. Again, you had another piece that in which you argue how Jamal Khashoggi was caught in the crossfire between two rival nations, being Turkey and Saudi Arabia, and that at the heart of his murder was the intertwined story of a prince and a populist. Uh, you explained that Jamal Khashoggi felt safe in Turkey. He had an affinity for President Erdogan, and he was even planning to partially settle there with his future wife. Talk about this crossfire and this uh, rivalry between Turkey and Saudi Arabia and how it came down basically to a murder at a consulate of a U.S. resident, a Washington Post columnist. I mean, you have right now three axes in the Middle East, three camps. One that we've, you know, just discussed was Iran, Hezbollah, Syria, you know, to some extent Hamas, definitely the Houthis in Yemen, the Iraqi Shia militias and their political allies and so on. And they have like this sort of highly Shia-inflected, populist, uh, majoritarian uh, view of politics, very Islamist, very pious rooted in this idea, ultimately, even though Bashar al-Assad is not exactly a Shia, but like rooted in this uh, idea of Belayat al and Iran as this the main power in the Middle East. And then you have the axis of authoritarians. They include, you know, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Egypt, and, you know, some of the other Arab monarchies as like kind of associate members of this sort of uh, a core group uh, Bahrain, an appendage of, of Saudi Arabia, and so on. And then you have, you know, Erdogan, who represents a sort of another version of Islamist populism, uh, different from Iran's version, but very, very, very distinct from the, the axis of authoritarians. And in, you know, Erdogan's camp is like the Muslim Brotherhood and the remnants thereof, the uh, various political parties in Western Libya, the, you know, Anahda party in Tunisia, you know, this sort of party focused, this sort of uh, European party style Islamist politics, I would call it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then you have Qatar, of course, mm -hmm. as a kind of member of that coalition. Qatar is not a, um, a, a democracy by any stretch of the imagination, uh, Islamist or otherwise, but it does pin its uh, vision for the future of the region on that vision. And, you know, Khashoggi is someone who grew up in Saudi Arabia. He was a loyal, uh, very loyal member of the Saudi elite. As a matter of fact, I, you know, knew Jamal Khashoggi in phone conversations, and I used to call him up when I needed quotes, like pro-Saudi quotes. I would call him up and I'd say, I need the Saudi, you know, point on this. Um, uh, can you talk to me about it? And sure, he would give me like the Saudi point of view on stuff, the official Saudi government view on like Iran or, you know, whatnot. Mm -hmm. But that was before MBS. And then MBS came along and pushed him. Uh, he was already sort of fascinated by the uh, version of Arab democratic politics unleashed by the 2011 Arab Spring uprisings. But it sort of really pushed him in that direction. And he, you know, as a, as a journalist, as a thinker and so on, he kind of went over to that side 
of politics. He became more friendly with that version of that, that axis. And, you know, he was basically caught in the battle between the Erdogan, MB, uh, Qatar axis and the, you know, Saudi, Egypt, UAE axis. That's what I meant in that piece. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to also talk about Lebanon. I know you've lived in Lebanon at some part. You've been based there. You've also covered the 2006 war in Lebanon. You've been watching um, the country somewhat from a distance now for for so many years. I, we can uh, look at the, the recent explosion in Beirut that brought a lot of discussions out there, but you had um, this piece talking about Hezbollah, basically saying that Hezbollah is the biggest obstacle to reform a state within a state they've built over four decades and it faces an existential threat from a transparent and well-run Lebanon, you argue. Talk about this, this, and then how it connects back to Iran, obviously, with, uh, with Hezbollah. It does somewhat connect to Iran, but, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it very much so in a way. But, like, what I'm saying is that Lebanon's problems are not caused by Hezbollah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, its problems are deeper, and th- the corruption is so deep and, you know, so profound. And, you know, Hezbollah is not the biggest, uh, it's not the most corrupt player in uh, Lebanese politics. But, and, and it sort of kept a distance from the uh, political games in uh, Beirut for many, many years. But at this point, that structure, that mess that is Lebanon, uh, it will not change with Hezbollah there because Hezbollah cannot afford to allow uh, Lebanon to become a well-run place. If it does, then it, its its whole operation, its whole strategic uh, posture is threatened. Hezbollah didn't cause uh, Lebanon's mess, but mm-hmm. at this point, it is, a, it is taking big advantage of it, and it is the most unmovable obstacle to reform. Mm-hmm. Um, Borzo, I also want to talk about the invasion, the 2003 invasion of Iraq. I know you've covered that and the subsequent rise of ISIS a decade later. Talk about your experience, first of all, covering that war over the years and how you see the future of Iraq, again, linking back to Iran, this U.S.-Iran rivalry on Iraqi soil and the past year or so of military tension basically escalating there between proxies, at some point Iran and the U.S. directly, the assassination of Soleimani, Iran uh, targeting the Assad base, U.S. forces in the Assad base directly from its soil. Talk about how you see all of this playing out from the perspective of, of the beginning of the of the invasion and what you've seen in the past sort of two decades, if we can say. I mean, that's a really huge question. Um, I, I spent a lot of time <laughs> in is. Iraq and, uh, you know, still in recent, in recent years, obviously in the last year, it's been tough because of COVID restrictions. But, you know, up until recently, mm-hmm. I was in and out of, of Iraq. And, uh, you know, it's a complex place. Iran is in my opinion, not a, uh, a great player in, in Iraq. There's various forces from Iran 
that are at work in, in Iraq. You know, let's start with the least nefarious, which is like normal day-to-day commerce, pilgrims, etc. business people coming in and out of Baghdad and Karbala and Najaf making deals and so on, you know, exporting juice boxes or whatnot uh, and butter and, and so on from Iran to Iraq. And then you get to like the level of officials, the foreign ministry, diplomatic ties, uh, easing trade and family uh, back and forth and so on. And then you go to like the intelligence level, definitely Iran's Ministry of Intelligence and Security, according to leaked documents that were published by The Intercept. Uh, definitely Iran has a you know, very robust intelligence role in uh, Iraq, monitoring what's happening there for Iran's security uh, and trying to keep an eye on what the U.S. is up to in, in Iraq and so on. And then you have, you know, the gremlins, the Quds Force, IRGC, and its allies in the Iraqi Shia militia movement who are, you know, not playing a great role. Not only are they kind of like gangsters in terms of uh, riding around in pickup trucks and uh, brandishing their weapons and so on, they have various corrupt schemes that they're running. They're involved in um, kickback schemes. They're trying to get their way into government contracts. Uh, they're demanding, you know, bribes and protection money and so on. So they've got like their little mafia there. And Iran's role in empowering these militias is not good for Iraq at all. So I would say that, you know, that in, in terms of Iran-Iraq relations, it's complex, uh, but generally on balance, bad for Iraq. And, you know, to a certain extent, not really very good for Iran either, because if relations were more normalized, the hostility that is there among many Iraqi people towards Iran because of its you know, nefarious activities would ease somewhat and there would be even a better, a more profound and productive blossoming of positive ties between these two countries in the commerce and tourism and, and cultural fields. Mm-hmm. I also want to ask you about the Abraham Accords, this newfound alliance or at least more public a friendship between Israel and some Arab states of the Persian Gulf um, that is essentially being uh, seen or signaled as a new alliance against Iran. How do you think this these new ties are changing, if any, uh, the dynamics in the region or that triple axis that you were talking about earlier? And how serious do you think this front or sustainable or long term this is going to be against Iran? I mean, they, they can say that it's against Iran, uh, but it doesn't really, in terms of that, that dimension, it doesn't make that much of a difference. I'm sure uh, Benjamin Netanyahu sees it as against Iran. Meanwhile, UAE continues to be a money laundering and logistics hub for you know, Iranians in many respects. And so I think that the UAE is playing a smart game. And that, that's what really the Abraham Accords are about. It's about and, and you see all the business deals that the UAE is making, all the investments it's making in, in Israel and so on. Meanwhile, it helps solidify the UAE's role in Washington. They get to cultivate strong ties with hawks and doves in Washington. And that is ultimately their benefactor. And that is ultimately the benefactor of those, that axis of authoritarian states. And so, you know, for UAE, it's great. For Israel, yeah, sure, Israelis can uh, uh, go to uh, the UAE and can go and holiday in Dubai. If it's any nicer than Tel Aviv, I I don't know. I don't think so. (laughs) 
Um, but you know, I mean, like, <laughs> Me yeah. But I don't, I don't know if it's any like net gain for uh, Israel. And uh, by the way, these countries were never at war. UAE and Bahrain mm-hmm. and Morocco. Um, you know, all the countries were, who are involved in the Abraham Accords, Sudan to some extent. It's like more of a normalization of a kind of cold peace that was already in place. But good for the UAE. They get to show off and say that, you know, we have a peace deal with Israel and they can use that to um, gain access to certain Congress people in Washington, which is ultimately the goal of the Abraham Accords, as far as the UAE is concerned. Good for MBZ, good for Mohammed bin Zayed, the de facto ruler of uh, UAE for uh, strengthening his country's alliance with Washington. And finally, Borzo, I want to talk about your personal experience a little bit. You're an Iranian-American. You grew up here in the U.S. You studied journalism, and then you ended up back in the region at some point in Iran. And then you've been across the region, mostly covering wars and conflict, and you've stayed there for this long time. Talk about your experience, why you became a journalist, and how you ended up in the region in the middle of all of these conflicts. Well, I mean, I, uh, you know, had always uh, wanted to be a um, uh, freelancer or um, an aid worker abroad. And I was, you know, working as a journalist in New York City and, you know, managed at that point, it was still possible to save money in New York City. And I managed to save enough money, (laughs) enough of a nest egg so that I would be able to, you know, kind of pursue this dream of freelancing abroad. And then all of a sudden, uh, September 11th happened. And um, mm-hmm. I kind of left my job in New York City and came to the Middle East, uh, at first Iran, to sort of freelance. Uh, quickly, I started making little side trips to Afghanistan and Iraq and so on. And then, uh, you know, I just got sucked into the Iraq conflict from very early on. Even before the U.S. invasion, I was in and out of Iraq. And then uh, afterward, I kept moving. I kept trying to do other stuff and doing other stuff in the region. I wanted to do more like cultural stories and so on. But the clients, as a freelancer, just kept asking me to go back to Iraq, 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 Iraq. And they, you know, kept giving me more and more incentives to go back to Iraq, to go to Baghdad and so on. So I became like an inadvertent uh, conflict reporter. Although I had, you know, sort of been in Afghanistan in the shaky months after the toppling of the Taliban, Um, It was really Iraq that drew me into conflict and post-conflict journalism. Okay, on that note, Borzu, I want to thank you for joining the Iran podcast. Great, thank you. That was Borzu Daragahi, an international correspondent for The Independent. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter at Iran podcast. You can also support the podcast by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran podcast and you click on support. Until next time, goodbye.